welcome to the final hinge points of the second season. I'm Danny Bessner, normally of the American Prestige Podcast, and I am here as always with my friend Matt Chrisman. And we are excited, overjoyed, ecstatic to welcome to the podcast Megan Day. Megan is an editor at Jacobin and the author of literally hundreds of articles. She made you socialist, and we're glad you're here for that reason. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny and Matt. So today we're, we're going to, this, this might be the most controversial one we did this season. This might be up there, Matt, with the SPD, you know, doing things wrong in World War II episode, World War I episode from last season, or maybe the, the episode about the Soviet Union, which in my understanding angered some people. But today we're going to talk about what if Bernie would have won the 2020 presidential election. So Megan or Matt, whoever wants to start, what, what do you think was at stake with the Bernie with the Bernie run in 2020, and how did it differ from 2016? And whichever one of you want to take it, just go for it. Follow your hearts. I think essentially what was at stake was whether or not we were going to persist in a kind of neoliberal malaise where it seems impossible to transform our society. It seems like the engine has been turned on and the motor is running and no one's driving and there's no intervention possible, right? Or whether or not politics can actually be used to transform the nature of society to improve people's lives. That was what was at stake in 2020. Now, it's not like over, over, right? Clearly, I still believe that politics can be used to transform people's lives. And I plan on, you know, continuing to try to put my energies into that project. But you have to be honest, like Bernie lost 2020 and we lost that vision for the foreseeable future. Um, We're we're basically going to be seeing more of the same. Some things can get a little bit better. You know, Biden sometimes does some good stuff and we're glad he does that instead of the other stuff. But overall, the overall situation doesn't change much. And politics recedes into the background for most people because they correctly identify there's not very much that they can do through politics to actually change the material conditions of their lives. I mean, yeah, what we're seeing is a turn uh, among those people who are turned on to politics uh, to be oriented towards politics specifically because of the only remaining promise government can make, which is to inflict some sort of misery on someone that you don't like, some group that uh, is composed of your uh, political uh, enemies, is cultural enemies, which basically you know the same thing at this point, uh, and so that's it. The, the the notion of government as a force for positive good in people's lives, yeah, we kind of have we lost a chance to see that uh, that theory of governments attempt to take control of these cascading crises. Uh, all of which just started to ramp up at about the exact same time that the Bernie campaign collapsed, which is, I think, why at the end of the day, this is uh, it is an interesting thing to to wonder, like, how would Bernie, how would an isolated Sanders presidency have handled this specific confluence of crisis that we're certainly in the middle of? Uh, but it also is, in my mind, not terribly likely to have ever happened, at least now in retrospect, we can say, uh, precisely because. There just was not enough ambient faith remaining, certainly after Obama and what happened in the decade after his presidency, to kindle into uh, a widespread commitment to to believing again or to believing the specific things that Bernie was saying. Uh, instead, uh, even though his campaign was was incredibly focused on trying to uh, pitch a uh, a government solution to the problems of life in America, uh, 
the people whose lives have been getting worse most precipitously uh, have lost faith in a government that anybody government can actually do those things for them. So before we actually get into the hinge point, I, I think it might actually be interesting for listeners to talk about how do you guys see people having responded? Now, it's, it's a couple of years. What do you see as the tendencies of this post-Bernie moment? Because in some sense, we're saying these tendencies wouldn't have happened, or maybe we said they would have happened. But let's set the scene before we get into the actual hinge point. Me- Megan's raising her hand. So Megan, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to give like a broad outline of, of what I see happening. So prior to 2015, when Bernie Sanders first announced his first run for the presidency and things really started to change politically, the mood started to change politically in response to that, I would say that the, the national political mood was was characterized by a combination of depoliticization and demoralization. So those are two slightly slightly different things. By that, what I mean is like demoralization is what we just talked about. People don't believe, they they don't believe anything is possible through politics. Depoliticization is sort of a consequence of that, which is that they don't really care. They don't pay attention to politics. They find it boring. It's like not, it's not, they think of it as a hobby that other people have. It's not really their thing, right? Um, So, you know, I guess you could say that with the, beginning of the ascent of neoliberalism in the 1970s, there started to be a kind of serious campaign to imaginatively foreclose on alternatives for people. I mean, you saw this most clearly with Margaret Thatcher basically just straight up saying there is no alternative, right? In fact, that was in the context of a speech where she was essentially like, I know people don't like that I'm imposing austerity, but I also know that you know that you can't do anything about it because we've won. That's uh, to paraphrase, but that's the basic idea was that, you know, you can't really... You know, you're demoralized because nothing can change and you're depoliticized because there's no point in paying attention to politics if nothing can change. 2015 changed that and not just because of Bernie Sanders, but also because of Donald Trump. So suddenly in 2015 and especially 2016, which is the year everything really, really sort of broke apart, um, the neoliberal center seemed to not be holding. And it seemed everybody across the spectrum started to see new political possibilities in either direction, whether that, that they seemed those possibilities seemed very frightening to them or very exciting to them. Either way, it seemed like there was some slippage happening and the future was as yet unwritten. Um, whereas before it had seemed very much locked into place. So during 2015 to 2020, which I think we should refer to as like the Bernie slash Trump era, um, you started to see more politicization and more encouragement, which I guess is the opposite of demoralization, more of a a sense that things might be possible to, it might be possible to transform society in one way or another. And I better pay attention to politics because those possibilities are both really exciting and also really terrifying right now. So between 2015-ish, 2016, definitely, and 2020, um, the demoralization and the depoliticization both started to reduce. Now, 2020 has come and gone, and we're in the post-2020 era, and I don't think that we've reverted back to the original com- combination of demoralization and depoliticization. Instead, what I think has happened is that people are demoralized, like they were before. They don't think anything can change, but they got politicized between 20. 20- 15 and 2020. And once you're politicized, it's really kind of hard to turn that off. And so right. people are more politically literate. They're paying attention to politics. Their identities are wrapped up in politics. Their social worlds are more structured around politics. They feel angrier at people who disagree with them politically. There's a hyper, hyper politicization and hyper political polarization. 
but without the belief that anything could change. And this is like actually a really messed up combination. If you think about it, people don't think that politics can actually transform anyone's lives. They are not, they don't believe that change is possible, but they are highly invested in politics and in their own identity as political creatures. Um, So you have people sort of at each other's throats. People hate each other, but they don't think anything can change is really what I'm saying. That's why they're able to still be political because they do think that things can change for the worse. And they think that the government can decide some people it's going to be worse for than others. And so even though things will be worse, the, the, they will, it, it will be the downward trajectory within the moment. There will still be relative positions and the relative positions are, can be, and will be determined politically. And so that is the fuel for investing in a political identity is picking somebody to go into the bone thresher first before you before yeah, you yeah that's right and that's what i was going to say too is that un- this unfortunate combination of demoralization and hyper politicization is really a breeding ground for reaction reaction in all different it takes on different faces in my opinion you know there's the obvious ones and the more subtle ones but in any case reactionary ideas including just seething uh, blood-curdling hatred for your fellow man and uh, born out of sort of alienation and demoralization plus hyper-politicization is what we're going to see more and more of. So I'm, I'm unfortunately of the belief that we're sliding into a reactionary period, um, partly as a result of the politicization that a much better period, um, well, not better in some sense. I mean, Trump was president. That wasn't so great. But Bernie was around, and that's that contributed to the major politicization as well. A, a more hopeful period, at least. And I think that's interesting because I, I do think, I mean, my whole theory is that we, we actually don't live in an era of mass politics. So I think you're going to see a lot of this political energy be channeled in very strange directions because it's very difficult to organize. L- labor relations have been so reconfigured. Uh, the administrative state, which really started getting going during World War II, is now basically unassailable. You basically can't really take it over. You know, even if there was a coup, I don't see how someone would actually be able to exercise this power through the state. It's not the 1930s when the state is just literally much simpler and you could get your hands around it. You know, you, you can't really even get your hands around the state. So we're in this real moment where there is a lot of political energy and that energy will be necessarily channeled in cultural directions. So building off of that, before we again, before we even get into the hinge point, what do you guys think are the formations that you see? And in, in, we're recording this in September 2022, what do you think the formations that you that you see coming into being? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's there's a lot of variety at the grassroots. People think that they're part of currents within broader cultural and political movements, but all of them tail the two major parties because the Democrat and the Republican parties are the only political actors. And because all we are doing to mostly all we are doing to reinforce our political identity is consume political media for the most part, then we are always our, our um, framing of every issue, our framing of every uh, phenomenon as it emerges from the, you know, this, the slow motion collapse of capitalism is filtered through the actions of those people who are able to determine the news of the day. And that is the political class who are, fully invested in uh, one of the two ma- major parties because that's where the money is. Uh, there's going to be no other uh, uh, formation because there is no other material basis for one. Uh, so like there are people who are still tailing the Democratic Party from the left, thinking that they're going to corral it uh, into a socialist direction. But, you know, we've seen it's a, the party, even though it cannot 
defend itself from, you know, perhaps this ending of formal uh, democracy, you know, on the medium term, but it can absolutely defend its narrow, specific, particular parochial interests against being overthrown from within. Uh, Because, again, there's no material basis outside of, you know, individual donors uh, and the remnants of the labor movement, and even not most of them, because most of the formal structures of the labor movement are still totally subsumed within the Democratic Party. One way or another, they are going to determine, and then people can sift through the rubble and and the refuse and, and build some sort of narrative about what's happening, but they're not going to be able to impose themselves on the moment. Same thing. There are now people who have convinced themselves that they can tail the Republicans from some sort of national populist conservatism. They can backdoor socialism, basically, by disarming culture war. But they are in the same material position related to the Republican Party that the uh, left is to the Democrats. Uh, It is an unassailable readout. So that means we will only have the politics that the parties decide we can have, even though we're going to be seeing, you know, escalating crises. Uh, economic and ecological and people's lives made worse in specific ways, the way we address them are going to be determined by the parties filtered through the media, which means they will definitionally revolve around identifying a scapegoat and then seeking their destruction, Uh, finding, finding some political coalition that will make that happen. And then people with, with that, People are going to be materially contributing to that, but the only way most of us do materially contribute to politics by voting in their individual way, uncoordinated outside of, you know, their self-conception as part of a, a trance of political identity. But no matter what's in their head, what's going to be the actual material result of that is they're going to vote in a party full of people who can only answer to the material base that underlines that party. So, yeah, it, it can only escalate. The, 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 that the problem, though, and this is really where there is opportunity, is that the system, as it exists, cannot sustain that. Because the constitutional order that we have, what's made it such a miracle of the Western world and made it so, such an uh, incredibly resilient structure compared to other democracies that have emerged in the years since, is that it, so much of it rests on agreed upon, essentially gentlemanly rules of political action that can only sustain in a context where everyone sort of understands that politics is, it's not life or death because of our material prosperity and the sort of unending horizon of material prosperity that allows us to disarm and to not go as hard to the paint as we could. The thing that makes us let up our, our blows with one another and allows us to blow off steam. I mean, even that we say it's, uh, it's, Resilient. There was still a civil war that killed fucking 600,000 people with that system. That is how little it can sustain people deciding to just not pretend that this stuff that is fake is real. Like pretend, not pretend that, uh, you know, that the floor is lava. Uh, And so it can't sustain politics where one half and eventually the other one, because they're going to wise up eventually, they have to, breaks the compact. So, you know, that's why you can't just assume that nothing can change. Uh, or even for the positive. But I think it's we increasingly have to come around to the idea that uh, those opportunities are going to be found in crisis. They're not going to be something that can be built within the current structure. It needs to be movement building towards the specific end, the teleology of confrontation with a state in crisis, rather than towards you know getting short-term reformist goals and like that it has its own contradictions, but I think it's the only way to like clearly look at the current situation that we're in. Megan, do you have any sense about the formations that you see in your day-to-day life as a socialist warrior? 
Well, I agree with a lot of what Matt said. Um, difficult as it is to to admit because it's like you know it's pretty depressing to think about how stuck we are in many ways but i will say that um well this is also depressing one of the things that i uh notice that i want to tack on to matt's comments is like the democratic party and the republican party being stand-ins for different you know dominant hegemonic cultures, as as we know. Um, they actually share a lot of DNA, um, but they tend to elide that and, in fact, go out of their way to exaggerate their differences um, so as to rile up their base and get buy-in, political identity buy-in, which could pay off in elections. Um, but it, the way that it actually pans out in real time is, like, pretty interesting to watch. It's like you have two divorced parents who are like dealing with custody over, you know, the children um, and they like refuse to see each other, but there are moments of handoff. So by, by, by that, what I mean is like, think about early COVID, like the, the very first signs of COVID um, when we first understood that there was a pandemic, but it hadn't quite hit American soil yet for reasons that made sense at the time it seemed like it was shaping up that that was going to be a Republican issue, that Republicans were going to be the ones who were saying the pandemic is real, COVID is coming, it's very scary. And there's no reason why that shouldn't have necessarily been the case. It's just that because Trump was president, um, when the crisis started in the United States and for a variety of other sort of minor reasons, the positions switched. And so the Democrats then became the ones who were saying you have to take COVID more seriously. And the Republicans started to become the ones who were, started to say, you know, you're blowing it out of proportion and you're messing everything up with these heavy handed responses and so on. But it wasn't it wasn't preordained that way. The only thing that was guaranteed was that these two forces were not going to agree. These two forces were actually going to take the issue and polarize it as much as possible and drag as many people down rabbit holes of craziness and animus with them. That was the only thing that was guaranteed. The actual positions themselves were not guaranteed, though they were de definitely influenced by real factors on the ground. So I just, I feel like we're seeing more and more of this like endlessly recursive self-identification in opposition to the imagined behemoth other. Behemoth. My wife always says it's pronounced behemoth. Well, how is that word pronounced? I, I've, always, I've always been partial to behemoth, but uh, you know, the, the, the nerds at Webster's sure claim that it's <laughs> behemoth. <laughs> All right. So you see my point, which is that like there's it's and it's crazy making because you're basically taking people and telling them if you want to have a consistent political identity, which because of increasing politicization means a consistent, coherent self-identity period, which is a psychological need of all people, then you need to buy in as hard as possible to, you know, our take, our group take on said issue at the expense of all nuance and at the expense of all relationships that you might have with people sort of who might differ from you. And it's just, the problem is that it doesn't actually like, isn't on to reality in the world. You're asking people to basically behave irrationally in order to shore up a coherent identity, psychologically speaking. Um, so basically everyone's going crazy and it's yeah. gonna probably go a little bit more crazy um, oh, yeah. than this. Well, let, let me propose a different world. Let's go back to early 2020. We gotta go back! <laughs> and a beautiful man named Bernard Sanders wins the Democratic Party nomination, destroys Trump in the election, and becomes president. Let's start with the best case scenario. 
What do you think happens and how are things different if Bernie enters in January 2021? We're still in the throes of COVID. I don't think the vaccine had even been released yet. What happens Not, then? Yeah, it was it was being first tentative rolls out by that point. Yes. Yeah, so so what, what is the best case scenario? What does Bernie do? Okay, I hadn't really necessarily prepared to answer this question in a world where the COVID-19 pandemic happens. But of course, I mean, I should have thought about it a little bit more because like, you know, it was coming either way. Right. Yeah. Um, it's already I mean, there. This, but this is but this is like such a good question, though, because um, there's only really so so much that the president, especially an incoming administration, can do with um, with the COVID crisis. I, I don't, I don't know a hundred percent about the public health stuff, but I will say economically, you would have seen a big fat checks a lot sooner and with a lot more frequency um, to make sure that people are not getting, you know, weren't getting their head held underwater by the, the, the pandemic economy. That would have, I mean, that would have just been a no brainer to Bernie Sanders. And it's something that could be done and was done by executive order, if I'm correct. So yeah, no, no question. Big fat checks all the time. In this, so we know the presidency is very constrained uh, on domestic policy and that it would be very difficult to imagine a Democratic Congress, even one that has better margins than the one that currently exists, which I think would have probably happened because you saw this big ticket splitting among affluent white suburbanites uh, where they were voting Biden in the presidency and then voting for Republican senators and congresspeople, which ended up dampening uh, the the coattail effects, even though Biden won relatively comfortably nationwide uh, and did incredibly uh, well in these areas. But these are guys who, at the end of the day, uh, they want they still support the Republican agenda. They want low taxes and they would have probably voted for Trump against Bernie. But there would have been probably a huge swing among working class voters and specifically the uh, the working class Latinos who voted for Trump in the end or who voted more for Trump than they had for previous Republicans. I think Bernie would likely dominate that area uh, and would have maybe canceled out that effect and led to a, a bigger Democratic uh, majority. But even there, the center of gravity of the party is in, the, in Congress is going to be dominated by the machine itself, which is inveterately and endlessly hostile to Bernie, would not cooperate with any of his broad projects. You might see some checks, but they also might uh, decide to close the purse strings on him. Uh, so what could he do? realistically with executive orders uh, to try to enact some sort of agenda independent of Congress? I mean, theoretically, you could do quite a bit. I mean, if you look at someone like FDR, who over his terms did over 3,000, I think you could actually do quite a bit because even if the executive orders are eventually ruled unconstitutional, I mean, you still have to fight them. It's basically a way to divide your enemy and conquer your enemy. Just issue a thousand executive orders in the first three months, and the enemy is going to have to deal with that. That you're going to have to pick and choose. The problem with someone like Biden is that an institutionalist like that would never do that. So the irony there, I think, and this is, I think, a broader problem. I'd like to hear what Megan thinks about it. I think the only way we would realistically get even minor forms of social democracy in the American state would be through profoundly anti-democratic means, which is frankly what an executive order is. That, that, that is about as undemocratic an act as one could get in the formal system of government. But I think it would have been absolutely necessary for Bernie to sort of pursue those moves. So there, there's an inherent tension, I think, at the very beginning of a Sanders administration between the, the, the necessity of the executive order and the fact that that is sure to stoke resentment 
sure to shore up a presidency that one doesn't necessarily want shoring up over the long term. So uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I wrote an article, um, the winter 2019 edition of Jacobin. I wrote an article uh, called Wielding the Imperial Presidency, which was basically a roundup of executive order ideas for Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, I'm at this point, it now, it like, I, I, I both like pine, but also cringe a little bit to recall that when I was writing this, I was thinking to myself, like, like, or especially like there were those a couple of sweet months or maybe one month where we thought it was possible that he was going to win. I was like, well, he's going to really need my article because that's going to be really useful for him when he goes <laughs> goes about deciding which executive orders to implement. Um, so, you know, there's actually a lot that he could do with, consecu- with executive orders. And yes, you're right, Danny, there is a kind of contradiction there because the whole purpose of the political project that Sanders represents is to increase democracy, broadly speaking, extended into, into the economy, for example, but also um, actually fulfill its promise in, in the political realm as well. And in order to do that, because of the um, constraints on the presidency, he would have to basically act alone, uh, be like a sort of a, a, a one-man instigator of a kind of bubbling up of, of true democracy, right? Um, so, but, you know, he would be obligated to use any tool at his disposal. Like if we, if we, the people, had put him in power, he would be obligated to use any tool at his disposal to further the agenda that the people had voted on by voting, uh, you know, voting for him. Um, and that would be, that would include executive orders. And there's actually a ton that he could do via executive order. Um, we tend to forget that because, like you said, it's just not the norm. We have so many institutionists, you know, who become presidents and people just aren't really that interested. Trump actually did uh, go kind of nuts with some executive orders for a minute and it worked. And when I say that it worked, I mean, you can actually affect both real change via executive order, even though it's temporary. This, the courts can strike it down. The next president can reverse it. So it's, it's very tenuous, but you can affect real change right now. And then once people actually get a taste of that, sometimes it just becomes more much harder politically to push back against it. You can create new constituencies for new ideas that didn't exist mere moments ago. And now, for example, a-, a national intelligence agency. <laughs> the yeah, OSS was created by exactly. A lot of those wartime agencies were created by executive orders. Exactly. And so it, it is, yeah. It's a way to reshape the state in a, in a very serious way. Yeah, you can but create remember, agencies, which is very good. You can create task forces, which usually just means nothing. But you can actually create real task forces that set about, you know, laying the groundwork for developing, you know, new stuff. What were you going to say, Matt? I was going to say all of those actions would have profound blowback, though. Uh, like there would be a coordinated uh, media and political uh, uh, resistance to that on the on all of the traditional grounds of of a uh, big government overreach and using the same cultural language. Now, Bernie might be able to diffuse at the margins that appeal with his class politics, but you still have very durable political coalitions. And you would also have the fact that the democratic party itself would not have his back in these issues would be the doing the thing where they would ritually be disavowing him, uh, that that would be a significant challenge and, and, and it would well that matt matt could you expand on that how do you think the party would have responded that's very interesting to me i think the party would have gotten behind him uh formally and it was you gotta have schumer and pelosi those guys like we're gonna work with the president to get the agenda for americans but as soon as the white house did anything they would uh obstruct it leak about the administration like a fucking shiv in a way probably never seen before uh, make it so that there would be basically nothing that they could do without it being 
uh, front page news because there's uh, it's impo- it would be impossible to engage with either legislative branch in any business uh, uh, confidentially because it, it would be it would be just an enemy force. I think, that, and then you'd have this dual face of a party that uh, would not totally sell them out to the crazed like the insane right wing reaction, which would be significant, but it would absolutely hold him at arm's length. And if it if uh, it was a successful like cultural conflagration, if if they were successful in really taking advantage of the fact that like Sanders presidency is not the expression of some socialist majority, but it's like this forlorn hope attempt to kindle the creation of one, which means you're not going to have some like durable social base that can stand up and, and defend him. I remember I multiple people when Bernie was riding high and we had all convinced ourselves he was going to win. At least I knew I had, I saw a number of people saying they couldn't wait for Bernie to win so that they could go out and protest him for his insufficiently radical stance on whatever issue they cared about. And that was just a profound misunderstanding of the, of, the, of the stakes and of what was happening. The whole gift of the Bernie presidency is that for the first time, I was talking about how we're all downstream of political actors. This is the first time that you could have another actor on the stage to disrupt and break up a ritualized fantasy makeup fight between two uh, equally capitalist parties. You would have another pole of action. And that means that I, I actually I'm a pessimist probably by nature when it comes to politics. Uh, I would if even when Bernie was was riding high and I convinced myself that he was going to win. I still in my mind steeled myself with this is going to be probably a, a forlorn uh, vain fight. You're not going to the people are not going to get Medicare for all. There's not going to be any real substantial change. The stuff people want. But my God, especially looking at the last two years and uh how awful everything has gotten and how there's no answer for any of it at any level of political action. Uh, I just think, imagine that the context of this sort of crisis and this sort of political intensity uh, and political cultural valence with a political actor who every day would essentially issue, you know, some sort of orders for the people on the team. Hey, if you want to hold on to that political identity, that is now part of your cultural costume and part of your social life and all this stuff. You uh, have to do something other than consume media and vote every two to four years. Like we're going to define political subjectivity differently. And of course, a lot of people would be like, oh, I didn't sign up for that. No, thank you. I'm going to actually decide that Bernie's a sellout and CIA agent and that uh, uh, it's time to go back to just uh, paralysis and uh, empty critique. But I, I think that the uh, the liveness of the action would draw in basically every eventually draw in the majority of people with any sort of good intention, like anybody who's not who is who is not fully cynically trying to uh, get the most out of socialism as a cultural costume as they can, which is that's a number of people. But there is such a force multiplier in having people acting together that it disrupts the entire House of Cards, and maybe they fall, they still fall, but they fall differently. It would have been incumbent on Bernie to take advantage of the pushback from the Democratic Party, from the bipartisan political establishment, certainly from the capitalist class, from, yep. you know, the, all, all the blowback that he got, which is inevitable, as both of you pointed out. Um, it can be 
an opportunity. I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be able to surmount this opportunity with any strategy. Right. But, um, but basically it would have been like, you know, the Salvador Allende strategy, which is to basically point at it and see, this is how much, this is how much they hate you. Like tell the people, this is how much they hate you. This is how much they don't want you to have what I just signed an executive order allowing you to have. And in that way, the use of executive orders in particular can set the parameters of the political conversation. And ideally a sort of hopefully along the lines that Matt was talking about, change the way that people think about themselves politically as a defender of something that the president, Bernie Sanders, who they voted for, wants to actually give them to make their lives better, but is being obstructed by the power structure. And so they have to get out on the streets and they have to organize and they have to protest and they have to actually fight to win this thing. And yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a uh, impossibility. It sounds, it sounds like a nice like pipe dream until you realize that we're thinking about it from 2022 when everything seems really, um, yes. really when kind of when the like, government gave up. The government when everybody gave up, was left but, to fend for themselves. Right, and but you know, but the truth is that between um, between t- like 2016 and 2020, um, we saw mass uprisings of people in the streets. The last yeah. one was the George Floyd uprisings, and in some ways, I think a lot of people thought it was going to be a beginning, but it was really kind of like a death knell. But think about the way that that people got into the streets um, at the beginning of the Trump administration. Remember those airport protests? Remember the yeah. women's march? I mean, it's not impossible to imagine that if Bernie Sanders had been president, that level of yes. of uh, political engagement would have stayed high like that, and people who are now currently sitting at home doing nothing uh, polit- political could have then found themselves in a position to actually get themselves out into the streets to defend the kinds of things, the kinds of gains that Bernie Sanders, the person they elected, the person they put in office, was trying to muscle through to make lives better for themselves and their family and their community. And the thing that would help him in that is, yes, we say a huge blowback that is supported by both parties behind the scenes, the Republicans publicly and and is bipartisanly embraced by all the sections of the mainstream media. Uh, but we are living in a world where part of the crisis of our democracy is that those institutions have been completely and totally uh, 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 delegitimized in people's eyes, which means uh, be- because a lot of people voted for Trump, the, the media freaked out about him. And because they had not like gone through the same cultural conditioning as the people who made the media and the people who consume the majority of it, uh, or were alienated by, you know, that cultural costume, they, they saw Trump and they did not see who the media claimed to be, to be there. And they like, Oh, uh, they're full of shit. And now they have basically des- decided that, a media consensus around a reality is a counter indicator of its truth, which is honestly a better heuristic than the opposite of assuming it's all real. Uh, but it, of course leaves you ungrounded, which is why people are drifting around and drifting to reaction because that's where the only action is. There is a world where that with this level of a delegitimization of institutions, when Sanders comes in and gets everybody against him in the mainstream media and the political parties, maybe the, those same people and a bunch of other people who were alienated by Trump's costume in the same way that the liberal media was, uh, decide actually, no, you guys are completely full of shit. Uh, nothing you say is true and uh, fuck off. And that would have instantly created a market that the uh, media industry would have had to have served. And so you get uh, counter hegemonic uh, uh, media institutions w- w- and a new like infrastructure for people to act. I mean, yes, like as the tip of a spear. And Jacobin, of course, yeah. Instead, alienation from the media or alienation from from the institutional reality that's like keeping us all on a, on a fucking express train to hell uh, is, is now in a state where it's threatened by Trump and what Trump represents, it's, it, which is the final extinguishment of these institutions. But it can only appeal to the people who are supposed to stop this from happening uh, through institutions that 
by their abuse have been delegitimized. So they can't do it. Nothing they say about him can have the effect they want it to because there is no consensus reality that can be represented by these institutions. Nobody can be Cronkite or Murrow and make a declaration from a uh, unaffiliated middle that was never real, but that could be consen- like consensually uh, fantasized. And the Cronkite and Murrow situation is also made possible by the Cold War, a very unique situation. But um, one thing that is interesting to me is that, that you guys were talking about the creation of this counter-hegemonic impulse. But how would that work in terms of mechanisms? Because if we're still – the American state still the American state. There's still this basically administrative state that does most of the governance outside of any popular will or popular structures. So one thing that's curious is like to me is how would Bernie have reshaped labor relations? How would Bernie have instantiated an actually more democratic world in the face of a state that is basically designed not to do either of those things? We've seen the Starbucks unionizations, we've seen the Amazon unionizations, but I'm wondering how a post a world in which Bernie had won would have affected these much deeper structural trends. Well, as far as labor, the labor movement, more specifically speaking, goes, I think that Bernie Sanders has demonstrated over the course of his entire career a real willingness to go out of his way to um, build union consciousness, awareness of unions, enthusiasm for unions and union identity among people who happen to be members of unions, but maybe don't really feel a strong sense of identity yet. And I would only imagine that he would do the same thing as president. I, I really, I really believe that labor union membership would have spiked under uh, Bernie Sanders' presidency just because of the level of um, enthusiasm for unions generated. It would have obviously come up against bad labor law. We have bad labor law. We have major restrictions and regulations. We have right-to-work states. You know, We have um, you know, hostile courts and so on. But right now, one of the main problems with uh, labor union density in the United States is that people don't really see a need for unions. They don't really have in their mind unions as a live option when they're struggling at their workplaces. It is actually possible to unionize your workplace pretty much anywhere that you work. So people aren't actually initiating union drives. Yeah, they're hard to win. Yeah, there's union busting campaigns. Yeah, the laws are like written in a way that can actually like tie you up or trip you up. And those things all need to be changed. But the real problem right now is that people don't even think I should start a union at my workplace. They think this job fucking sucks and I should get another job. I hope I can get another job soon. Maybe if I do a side hustle, then that'll be good for my resume. And then I can actually be eligible for a better job down the line, et cetera. And so I think if you had a president who was traveling across the country, you know, stumping for the labor movement and talking about how necessary it is to join a union, you would see um, people wanting to initiate union drives in their workplaces more. And the, the labor movement, you know, the sort of established labor movement would be the recipient and the beneficiary of that. That would also improve and increase. I mean, more members means more muscle, which means that labor has like a bigger seat at the table, which means that labor can actually push through some of the changes that it wants to see on those laws and and regulations. Like there was a, you know, the PRO Act is a a good example of like a a big piece of legislation that contains a lot of different changes that need to happen to American labor law. But unfortunately, labor itself is too weak to actually muscle through anything like the PRO Act. Nobody's listening to the labor movement. If the labor movement is bigger, then maybe people would listen. So you could see it having like a dual effect, like you build the labor movement in order to change the rules in order to build the labor movement. I mean, it could have actually genuinely set off a kind of snowball effect where we could see a resurgence of labor in 
this country. And, you know, to be honest, Bernie lost and we're still seeing the effects of the Bernie moment on the labor movement. The labor movement is not in great shape. We're not we shouldn't be talking about some like great labor upsurge there. It's not necessarily the case that that's like around the corner. Union density is still idling at a very pathetic level. But there is a new mood of labor militancy and a lot of it. You, you have to give credit where it's due. A lot of it was inspired by, if not directly Bernie Sanders, though some organizers like at Starbucks, for example, will tell you they're directly inspired by Bernie Sanders. But if not directly Bernie Sanders, then the mood, the mood of pro-union the sentiment, the vibe. And who's responsible for the vibe? The Bernie Sanders movement, you know, it's not, maybe it's not just the man himself, but like the Bernie Sanders movement, broadly speaking, is responsible for bringing that vibe to the American people. And it's paying dividends, even though he didn't even win. He didn't even win a primary, much less a general. He's certainly not our president and we're still seeing it paying off. So I would imagine that if Bernie Sanders had won, whatever other obstacles he would have faced, and there would have been plenty. And um, whatever other blowback there might be from this labor upsurge, which capital would definitely retaliate um, in response to the labor upsurge, you would st- I think you would see higher rates of unionization in the United States just as a direct result of Bernie Sanders being president. All right. Well, speaking of the, the, the obstacles earlier, you said that this would be sort of a Allende style strategy. Does that mean that it would get a Allende style response or does the U.S. have privilege to not have to worry about that happening if they accidentally let a, a mild social democrat into office? I mean, are we gonna are we gonna shift from the positive scenario to the negative scenario? Because that's like the I most think we've extreme. just been intermingling. Let's talk about negative though. Okay, ne- so negative. my my response to you, Matt, is there would have been some truly horrific response from definitely from the capitalist class probably from various united elements of the state. And I don't mean, you know, the Democratic and Republican parties and their representatives in in Congress. I mean, other uh, elements of the state, the FBI, the CIA. Like, I I don't think that he would have been cooed, (laughs) you know? I don't think directly. But I do think a one-two punch of monitoring and surveilling and possibly doing their best to dismantle pro Sanders social movements on the ground while also the capitalist class can disinvests from regions that are benefiting from Sanders policy in order to like uh, decrease the popularity of his agenda because um, now suddenly you have joblessness and unemployment and disinvestment and so on um, that combination would work to just like fuck everything up And I think we probably would have seen a concerted effort to do it. Um, And it might have worked. I mean, it might have been the case. You know, I'll just tell you this. Um, The late uh, socialist intellectual Leo Panitch, wonderful guy. Um, I was had the privilege of being on a panel with him after Bernie lost. And I was waxing poetic about the world that had just slipped through our fingers, essentially. And Leo said, you know, he said, I I always really appreciate how Megan, you know, speaks with the passion of an activist, but I think that she's being a little too sanguine about what would have happened if Bernie Sanders had won. And that was a good reality check because he essentially described a situation where like, yes, it's going to be better than this. Everything's better than this. This is just nothing. The world that we live in now, there's no hope for political transformation. We're stuck in a stalemate, right? But like, it would have been good for um, for new possibilities to be generated, new types of political subjectivities to come into play and the parameters of politics to change. So that's a net positive. But as for the administration itself and its fate, 
probably very grim because there are very, very powerful actors that would have wanted to put the kibosh on it and would have had the means to do so. I think basically the like worst case scenario is like the Sanders administration is ground into a pulp and can't really achieve much of anything that it sets out to do. But even that has a silver lining, which is that people's politicization would find an outlet in understanding the degree to which they had been denied the promises by the Bernie campaign and which actors were denying them. And hopefully that would have just yielded better American political prospects in the future. Yeah. It's a question is whether his struggle his probably futile struggle against these deep institutions uh, would as being observed by a populace, it would be observed as this, you know, passion play of this hero being brought down, uh, which would then orient them towards a certain politics and a certain way of understanding themselves and, the, the institutions that they were embedded in and what would be the right thing to do in any given situation, you know, and then maybe, maybe you get January 6th, but a good one, you know, like the, the idea of having a bunch of the, the, one of the things that made January 6th deeply uh, depressing was just thinking like this, this should, this is a thing that should absolutely be on the table, this sort of act. And if it isn't, we don't really have anything meaningfully. You could meaningfully call a democracy. Uh, if you can't storm the fucking Capitol, you don't really have, a democratic polity, but my God for this guy over this. And that's, that's the tragedy of it. But if you, if you, the question is, could that energy, can that sort of energy be unwound from the specific grotesque spectacle that Trump represents to like the curdled middle-class resentment politics where, where, where you're really there to, to stick it to some imagined resented other. And, and even if you, uh, you know, uh, would prefer there to be national health care and you don't like big business and you like unions. All of that is subject and subordinated to your just deeper reptile desire to enact a, 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 a pageant of resentment as politics. Could that energy be detached from that or is it are they inextricable? Can, is, is it a package deal where we've only built that cap- capacity within Americans? The other has been sort of uh, slowly eroded away. It's such a good question, Matt. I have to just in terms of like, mm, like the political libido and whether or not the politicization of the Trump slash Bernie era was actually just like rising resentment or whether there was a kernel of solidarity in there. That's such a good question. I I have to think that based on what I've seen with my own eyes, that at least on the Bernie side of things, you started to see people first animated by resentment, start to develop more mature political capacities. I really feel like I saw it. I mean, I feel like I underwent it myself. Honestly, I'll tell you the truth. When I walked in the door 2016, I was like a pro Bernie, like I'm here for the new millennial socialist thing. Let's do it. A lot of my energy was really around the, um, my disgust with uh, establishment Democratic Party figures, which is a kind of mirror image version of what you're talking about, Matt. I mean, I was driven in large part by resentment, but it only took, I swear to God, only took a few months of telling myself, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to show up. I'm going to organize in DSA. I'm going to get interested in unions and learn about them and show up to do strike solidarity for new concerns to supplant the old resentments. And I think that me and the other people that joined that project with me became better political actors, probably, frankly, better people over the course of those years. And my hope would be that, or I guess it's a counterfactual and a hypothetical anyway, but like had Bernie won, I still on some level believe that we could have made 
we could have made better political actors out of Americans through that process, even sure. though the blowback would have been severe. Well, that's just it is you're making better ones, but you're also making work ones, worse ones. And it's a question of who's who's got the numbers. And that's where I think it, you're less likely in that context to see the big thing, the big uh, boogeyman of liberal imaginings, a fascist takeover of America, because that center is gone with those heightening of, of, of political conflict. And yes, the emergence of these two new polls that that would end up resulting in good old American devolution because you have states under basically completely dominant, uh, dominated by Republican, uh, the Republican Party, and would probably at some point uh, escalate to uh, some sort of nullification policy and and stop cooperating with federal uh, enactments. And what happens then? So, guys, we're coming up on the end here, but let's let's get a little personal at the end of this season of Hinge Points. Megan, first to you, what role do you think Jacobin would have played had Bernie won? What role is Megan Day playing? And then, Matt, I'm going to ask you the same question about Chapo, because I'm, I'm curious, because both Jacobin and Chapo were really, uh, you know, they're of this moment, and they were made by the Bernie moment. To, I mean, Jacobin obviously comes beforehand, but it becomes this big national magazine. So I, I'm just curious. I'm sure you've thought about it. And I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, of course I've thought about it. It seems I mentioned this earlier when I talked to you just now about like writing this article about all the executive orders that Bernie could pass and thinking at least for one moment, like it seems so silly now, just like thinking like the president's going to find my article very useful. And like it just the reason I'm laughing is because it seems so far away, but it really felt real. It felt real. There were there was a time period where I was thinking like Bernie's going to win. And I'm going to have to move to Washington, D.C. to cover his administration in a friendly manner because it's all going to be hostile and we need people on the Hill. We need journalists on the Hill finding out what's going on and reporting on the administration in some manner that isn't like completely hostile. And I was actually thinking to myself, like, you know, I just I don't love D.C. I don't love the way it looks. I don't love the weather, but I'll do it. I'll do it if I need to. And then, of course, everything completely unravels. And then, like now I'm sitting here in 2022 in Los Angeles thinking like, was that really me? Was I actually thinking like, I, okay, if you insist, I will move to Washington, DC. But like, I actually think, you know, that a lot of people, it sounds, I, I think it sounds again, kind of silly from the present, but at the, it, it, like, if you really actually game it out, in terms of Bernie Sanders winning, who's he going to staff his administration with? He's going to staff it with a lot of a lot of old timers who at least have some like some progressive credentials or seem like they're not going to be like total turncoats, but have like the requisite expertise to be able to like manage the bureaucracy. But then he's also going to bring in a lot of ideologues um, to fill in the gaps. And that's a lot of people that we know straight up like I, mean- I I think that it, a lot of people like could have been involved in that administration or at the very least would have been involved in a peripheral way in the sort of like support structures for the administration. I mean, th- that's true. But frankly, the staffing of the campaign makes me think that the staffing of the administration might have had some problems because even within the campaign, there's there are a number of people who were brought on because they represented some, you know, fragment of uh, the party, some some network of patronage and, and insider shit. And, and they were a, you know, a waste of money at best, if not outright hindrance. And, you know, you got to figure that they would, that would be a, a challenge would be there. The, the, the opportunists in the midst, uh, cause you can't screen for that really. 
it would have been so interesting. Like, it's really sad that we didn't get to play this out. That moment of like, okay, we all pitched in for this campaign and we won. Who Who's going to be represented in the administration? Like, what is the makeup? Is it going to yeah. be just like, you know, Obama runoff? Or is it going to be like the ideologues who like showed up and like door knocked for Bernie? And I think it'd be both. And then they would fight it out. And, then it, and there'd be a civil war within the in, within the administration. No, I mean, I, you, you, I, I actually think that. Like, I actually think it would have been a mixture of both because there literally aren't quite you enough of to. either one yeah. of them. To, yeah, there aren't quite yeah. enough of either one of them to patch together, to cobble together a, a total administration, like every single thing that everybody needs to do. So actually, it would have been both. And the dynamics that you started to see that we tried, you know, I think a lot of us like tried to keep keep it like under wraps for the sake of the campaign, but there were definitely tensions in the campaign. And I think that they would have. I had no risen. idea. Meg, Did you? <laughs> I'm informing you now for the first time that there were tensions in the Bernie campaign along these similar, these lines or similar lines, they would have definitely appeared in the administration. And it would have been so interesting to watch the way that it played out. And, um, you know, probably <laughs> the ideologues would have, uh, Take, been given a backseat for a variety of structural reasons, one of which being that they just don't have the, the experience necessary. It to would have depended out. on the issue area. I think I think in healthcare, you could have seen a lot of movement. I think that would have been less true for certain areas like foreign policy. You know, it, it's, tough to, it's tough to know. But uh, Matt, I know you need to go, but I'm curious, what role do you think like a Chapo, or really, if you don't want to talk about Chapo, the sort of indie left media space would have played I mean, of course, my fantasy of it is I would have been Bernie's press secretary and just got to go up there and scream at those idiots every day and own their shit. That would that's, of course, anyone's dream job. But I think Bernie probably would have want to go that hostile off the bat. Maybe I'm like the fourth press secretary like, as the ship's going down. Uh, but I don't think I'd have been the first one. So, yeah, I think we, I, we, Chapa would still be there. It would probably have a higher profile. And of course, like there would be this. Uh, you know, I, I, you'd have some sort of effort by mainstream media to like cater to this new reality and like, you know, hey, push. I think some of us fantasize, not me, but some of us fantasize about like, oh, going to get on MSNBC now, you know, uh, and then just be a talking head, but like a good one instead of a bad one, because now we have an actual president worth defending instead of just another Democrat. Uh, but uh, I it would have been I think it probably would have tried to stay independent and on the show. And yeah, it would have been a, a sort of an arm of the administration, I think. And that might've made it more boring over time, but it might've also made it more practically useful. Like one of our challenges is we don't have, to, we have no idea what to tell people what to do. So we are, we always are sort of at a loss when uh, addressing a lot of issues because we're left really just being able, only able to uh, relate to the sort of the most meta abstract levels of any issue. Uh, I think that a, a uh, chapo that is a actual source, you know, for for action, a, a direct like a coordinator of direct of uh, and director of action for 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 listeners. That I think that's what I would hope it would be. Uh, but you know, it, it would all probably go down in flames. Uh, but even if that was true, even if the whole thing was a failure and it would just set the stage for a final reactionary turn that just abolishes uh, this, you know, uh, this ghost of a of a of a movement that doesn't know it's dead yet uh, before getting, you know, zapped with a proton pack and put it in the containment unit. Uh, even if that's all it is, well, then that would have been still like upping the morphine drip because it would have given life the drama of uh, a purpose. The thing we're all missing and the thing that's driving us all crazy is that we know things are bad, getting worse. And we, we have an understanding of ourselves as 
as autonomous beings, and yet we do nothing and can do nothing to avert our fate, and it just drives us to misery and anxiety, self-loathing and hatred of others, and, and it kindles this desire to see others punished. I think even a failed Bernie campaign is a context of a struggle uh, where a lot of those existential questions get answered for you because instead of going online to scroll and get takes and, uh, and uh, curate your personality and, and uh, finally hone your abstract opinions about issues uh, and get entertained, in other words, it would be uh, an extension of a daily terrain of struggle that you are finding somewhere because there would be something to do at least for a while. Very well said, Matt. Megan, Michelle Day, thank you for rounding out this second season of Hinge Points. Matt, thank you so much for doing it with me. This was great. Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Matt. Bye.